This used to be the roughest, toughest boom camp in the whole United States. Some of these towns in and around here had their tough spells, but their oil didn't last as long as ours, and that cut out the toughs for them. They got jealous of our money, and their newspapers ran pieces like Seminole scored to date, 20 killed, 40 wounded, or some other smart aleck thing like that. We had plenty of killings and shootings and cutting scraps, all right. I don't ever claim we didn't, but what most people don't realize is it wasn't our fault at all. When they struck oil here, Seminole was the only boom town in the country. Cromwell had come in two years before and already petered out. East Texas and Oklahoma City and Hobbs, New Mexico didn't come in till later. And when they did, they were so close together, they all stabilized each other. But Seminole was all by itself for three years. We had a biggest boom in the whole world. In 26 and 27, we produced over one-fifth of the total oil production for the world. And this easy money sucked in all the drifters and promoters and chippies and killers and tin horn crooks from all over the country. I'd been in the internal revenue service, but I quit and went back to gin and cotton. And when that didn't pay me like it should, I came to Seminole during the first two years of the boom to see about opening some kind of a store. I got here about four o'clock one afternoon and stood in line outside a cafe till I could get in and get a meal and then went room hunting. There's a little two-story hotel standing over there. I gave the clerk a dollar for his own pocket and he worked me in for a bed. It was in a room with three other beds, but it cost me $3.50 for the night. Hotels then used blankets and quilts mostly. And if they did use sheets, they were so proud of them, they raised the tariff a dollar and didn't change the sheets until they were worn clean off beds. It was $3.50 a throw for every man. And I could have bought the whole mess of furniture in that room in another town for $3.50. I went to work as a policeman under a friend of mine and stayed on until they got the town incorporated in 27. And then I was made chief of police and stayed chief ever since. There wasn't a jail closer than the county seat at Wawoka, 18 miles away. So when I was made chief, I went over to the railroad yard and commandeered an empty boxcar. Had it trucked over to the foot of a little hill on a block east of Main Street and used it for a jail. There wasn't room for more than 20 people inside, but many a night I've ran as many as 55 or 60 in it. If we'd let them loose, there would have been the damnedest fights there ever was. So I had holes bored through the sides of the boxcar and put leg irons on the prisoners. <laughs> oh... Sorry to break character, folks. <laughs> I did read this through once before, and uh, <laughs> I just didn't remember this part. So we are in, we're, we're midway through the story of, actually not quite midway through the story, told by a man named Jake Sims. And uh, yes, this is from those of you who, it's been a while since I've talked about this book. Uh, in fact, it may have, the last time may have been back 
in the previous life when this show was Oil and Gas Tech podcast. Uh, this is Voices from the Oil Fields. Uh, and uh, it's a great book. Yeah, I've had it for a few years now. Uh, Voices from the Oil, or Voices from the Oil Fields is a book. Uh, it's really a compilation of interviews with people uh, out. And I think, if I remember correctly, it's mostly. Well, I got to get the Jake Slims. No, what's his name? Jake Sims. I got to get. I got to shake the Jake Sims drawl out here, folks. It'll take me a couple of minutes, but um. Uh, yeah, this is a, it's a compilation of interviews with people in the oil fields. Uh, mostly, I think at the time it was in there, it was in the twenties, I believe. And, uh, people in the Oklahoma, Texas area, I think a lot of Oklahoma. And, um, I, I don't, you know, so this, so it's an interesting story behind how this book got put together, but suffice to say that it was edited, uh, by, uh, these two these two fellows, Paul F. Lambert and Kenny Franks, they put this thing together. And so each chapter is really just is is just uh, a transcription of the interview with whoever it was. And there's some great stories. Some of you might remember back in the oil and gas tech days, I did an episode called Shooters Don't Make But One Mistake. And that... Uh, that was that was a chapter out of this book featuring uh, Shorty. What was the guy Shorty Rogers? I think is what he was, and he was he was a nitroglycerin shooter. And uh, I, I guess it, the title pretty much sums it up. You only you only make you only make one mistake if you if you make one, and that's the end of it. So uh, lots of stories like that in this book. Now this one, this particular. Uh, as told by Jake Sims, who became the uh, the sheriff, or I guess the the chief of police, in uh, in Seminole. Now, th- this is talking about this is from the time of the great Seminole Seminole oil boom uh, in Oklahoma in the 1920s. So, more on that in just a few minutes. But first, let's finish the story. Uh, let's see, where was I? There wasn't room for more than 20 people, many a night, 55 or 60, if we let them loose. Oh, here we go. So I had holes bored through the sides of the boxcar and put leg. I can't even see. I can't. Just... One more time. Well, I'm going to hold it together this time. Here we go. So I had holes bored through the sides of the boxcar and put leg irons on the prisoner's as they came in and ran the ends of the irons out through the holes and slipped the long iron bar through the whole bunch of them. <laughs> Men were on one side and the women on the other. You can't say he didn't have a sense of propriety. Oh, look, here's a picture of Jake Sims when he was an FBI agent. I don't remember him saying he was an FBI. I was IRS. Anyway, here we go. It was tough on someone that got thrown in there for a little something because the really mean ones would beat the hell out of them and rob them. And I even had two knifings take place in there. We couldn't keep up with half that went on. And we caught all kinds of the devil for there being so many drunks and dopies and fights and so forth. But even during the peak of the boom, we didn't have but... 14 policemen to watch over the 150,000 people that were here. 
There weren't any two-way radios then. The roads were swamps in the winter and in the rainy weather, and there wasn't as much cooperation between the state and the government and the cities as there is now. We had so much to do, we kind of overlooked little things like drunkenness. We got so many people thrown in jail that we had the only justice of the peace in town move his desk down there by the side of the boxcar just so he could get rid of the cases faster. We'd bring a drunk down there and let the JP take his money if he had enough to pay the fine and then book him out. Now, Seminole was much smaller before the oil boom. The Discovery Wells and all the major oil company camps, the red light districts, and about three-quarters of all the houses were outside the city limits. The sheriff's office was at Wawoka, but he stationed one of his deputies over here to help us. That one deputy couldn't handle even half of what was going on by himself, so us boys in town took care of as much as we could. If we wanted a man for something, we went out into the country and grabbed him. And if the deputy wanted a man who was hiding out here in Seminole, he walked in and took him. That was the only way to handle things because both offices were understaffed. Now, the worst place in the whole state, or maybe the whole country, was what they called Chancra Flats, just north and east of the town itself. It ran right up to the edge of town and it had its own stores and beer joints and dance halls and everything they needed on their own main street. That was the red light district for the whole county and the toughest place in the world. Sending a man down there to get someone was like sending him out in front of a firing squad. I sat in a car with the deputy sheriff one evening in 28, and we counted up all the killings that had happened inside the palace dance hall or just outside of it. And we made it out to be 47. And there were some killings that hadn't been reported to us or that we couldn't remember. The 49er, the Pearl, and a couple dozen more. They sold tickets for a quarter apiece, and you picked out a woman from the ones herded into the bullpen and gave her the ticket. A dance lasted 50 seconds. The manager figured out that even if a man was sober, it would take him 10 seconds to buy his ticket and pick out his partner. The girl got a dime out of each ticket. Those dance halls coined money. One night of the week, I was down at the palace talking to the manager as he was checking out the cash register. After he took out the girls' dimes and the wages for the bartender and the bouncers and the orchestra, he still had over $1,800 in cash. Saturdays and paydays, he'd run two and three times that much. I had one dance hall manager tell me that if he didn't run $5,000 a week, he would figure business was shot to hell and sell out. Now, the people in Seminole, with their churches and homes and so on, they were on us all the time to close down Chancra Flats. But we couldn't. It would have taken a regiment of men to do so. And when the boom was over, some of the saloon men and dance hall managers came up to see me and said they wanted to move their joints uptown. I told them they were going to stay right where they were. They had their own businesses down there, and I didn't even want to see one of them move uptown. I wanted them down there where I could put my finger on them. And if they wanted to stay in a bunch down there, it was okay, because 
They sure as hell weren't going to come up here among decent people. I got criticized plenty for allowing them to stay down there until they gradually drifted away like I knew they would. But the way I looked at it, crime goes deeper than passing a law and hiring a few policemen to enforce it. If the people themselves don't want a clean town to live in, there's not a man alive can put on a tin badge and a 45 and make it clean in spite of them. And as long as people have to have their joints, I'd say it's better to have them all in one place like we did here. Look at Oklahoma City. Their boom wasn't anything compared to the one we had because theirs was one of the half dozen or so and the drifters and criminals didn't all flock to Oklahoma City. The people up there didn't want the few there was in a red light district out in the oil fields where it belonged, so they drove the bootleggers, the women, and the punks right up into town itself, and now they'll never get rid of them. Now, I'm not saying it's the men working in the field that start all the hell raising. They're not to blame for it. The people in town are the ones I blame for not fixing up their town to where it's decent to live in. There's nothing to do in a boom town, so naturally they raise hell to get rid of some steam. If you don't think oil workers are just as good as anyone else to live with, look at Seminole now. It's a good place to live, to bring up a family. Every man working the fields here is a family man and is buying his home and a car and paying his debts on time. We've got the lowest juvenile delinquency rates of any town its size in the country, and we haven't had but one hijacking in four years. What town of 15,000 people can beat that record? Of course, Seminole's already got a reputation of being tough, and it's hard to live it down. I was talking to the sheriff of Salisaw County, the one the writer guy had all the Okies coming from. He was complaining that the book had scared the bankers back east into thinking the whole damn country was starving to death and they wouldn't buy their city or county bonds for a dime on the dollar. Man, I told him, being poor isn't a disgrace because there's a chance you can live that down. But what if you had a reputation like Seminole's guy? People writing letters from the East wanting to know what kind of guns is mostly used out here and if it's safe for them to come through. Wait until you got a reputation like that and then you really got something to live down. And that is the end of, what was his name? <laughs> Jake Sims. <laughs> Flip back. Jake Sims. The law in Seminole. Um, there are there are a few things that I want to I want to highlight that are fascinating about this story. I think relative to uh, relative to our beloved oil and gas industry. Uh, but first, let me give you a little background on what was going on. Now, this is of course uh, for those of you uh, who weren't around in the twenties or maybe <laughs> haven't haven't done your reading. Um, there was the great Seminole oil boom in Oklahoma, and uh, which evidently was like the large, one of the largest or the largest booms in the United States, uh, like, like ever. And um, you know, there were so many people 
ru- just like all the other ones, right? All these people are rushing into the area. And, and um, let's see, I got some stats here. What do we got? Okay. During July and August of 1927, still losing that Jake Sims drawl. Just give me a minute. It'll be gone. During, during July and August of 1927, the population of Seminole jumped. Now get this. From 800 to 10,000 people <laughs> in two months. So imagine you're living in your nice little town of 800 people. Uh, yeah, you go away for an extended summer vacation to see the family back east. And, uh, and you come back at the beginning of September. And your town now has 10,000 people in it. And within a few months, the population of the community, within a few months, was estimated to be somewhere between 27 and 50,000 people, with a whole nother 50,000 people in Seminole County. So there's Seminole, the town, and then Seminole County. Uh, so so when, he, when Jake tells about how it attracted, what was it he said here? Uh, it attracted all the, you know, all the, the elements. It attracted the element. I don't know. He had a he had a very colorful way of saying it. I can't remember, but all the, all the uh, the criminals and and whatnot. Um, you know, you got you got that many people flocking into an area. It's a bit chaotic. There's not much law. Law. You know, the law can't. The law enforcement can't really scale to keep up. Uh, there's probably all kinds of shady backdoor deals going on. Uh, some of them are probably happening at the front door, and uh, it's a uh, it's the proverbial shit show, as we like to say. But um, but note that he points out that it, it wasn't it wasn't the oil field workers. It's not those guys. What did he say? They're all raising families and buying houses and buying cars and paying their debts on time. So that really, that, that stood out to me, you know, because we, we know about, you know, the wild days of the oil field and we know it was a colorful time. That's, that's not a big surprise to us, but it's interesting to note that what it was not, the oil field workers, much like today, they were, uh, you know, they're decent folk as as we used to say um it wasn't like okay well all these uh all these oil field workers you know uh are a bunch of camfs and they're out there raising hell uh and oh by the way when they're sober they also happen to work you know you know risk their lives on on uh oil rigs and and get paid a reasonable amount of money no the, the guys and i'm you know I'm generalizing, right? So I'm, I'm sure there were some scoundrels in the bunch. But according to Jake Sims, who uh, was, you know, was the law in Seminole, and he and he was and and he didn't have much help, as you heard. Um, according to him, the the oilfield families, those guys were not. Not only were they not the problem, but uh, they were upstanding citizens. And uh, I don't know, you know, I just thought that was. There's no big moral in that. I just thought that was uh, that was interesting to note, and um, and it, and it kind of it helps you know clear up any mischaracterizations there might be about the people in this industry in those early days. Let's see what else here is. Um, 
Um, and by the way, like I said, they, they, much like today, you know, they are the, they are the, uh, the people, they're the solid folks in society, uh, wherever you go. Let's see. Oh, something else that's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, here we go. There was, so he mentioned Chanker Flats. Chanker Flats? So though, <laughs> Jake didn't comment on, on the name of Chanker Flats. Some of you may, uh, hopefully you don't, hopefully you're not familiar with this word. The word is C-H-A-N-C-R-E. Chanker. Hopefully you're not familiar with that word because it's actually, um, you know, not to get too graphic here, but it's some, it's one of the, something that happens on your skin that's like the early, in the early stages of syphilis. <laughs> so I don't know about you, but I'm not buying a house in Chanker Flats, but apparently uh, there was, there were quite a few. And if you, um, if you listen to how he told the story, it was, there was the town of Seminole, which had kind of the, like the good people with their churches and homes and whatnot. And then there was this outside of town area that was kind of its own town with its own, you know, all its own stuff. Um, uh, but a lot of, you know, but not, no churches were mentioned, but certainly saloons and brothels and, and whatnot. Um, and it ran right up. Uh, let's see here. I got, oh yeah, there was a, uh, it was also known as Bishop's Alley. And it was an area four blocks square, so not very big, four blocks square, um, filled with pool halls and beer joints and dance halls and gambling dens and bordellos. Um, and so you could go there and have quite a time. And I'm not saying that none of the oil field workers ever went over to Bishop's Alley and, you know, had a little fun, um, but... Uh, but generally speaking, the the people in the town kind of wanted the, the they weren't real happy about that other side of town, and uh, but and but also here's an interesting bit. So the oil field workers typically were paid in cash, uh, so you know, and there was you know there were big payrolls. There's a lot lots of people working there, and uh, and they made decent money. And so uh, if you're a crook and you're looking for uh, people to rob. Um, you know, the, this is this is the place for you, and uh, and so it was very dangerous. In fact, uh, you heard him say how many killings. Uh, so it's, so it wasn't like people just came whacked you over the head and took your money, but you know maybe they were going to kill you too. So those were the conditions, and yet, and yet, our fearless oil field workers, uh, they they stayed in it, obviously. Uh, at, uh, at at whatever risk and uh, however mad their wives were at them for taking them to this godforsaken place, but they hung in there and they got it done. In fact, uh, let's see right here. According to the according to the American Oil and Gas Historical Society, uh, let's see. Oh, wait a second. I lost my page. Here it is. Uh, the 1926 oil field discovery at Seminole launched the greater Seminole oil boom. More than 60 petroleum reservoirs were found in 1,300 square miles of east central Oklahoma, and seven were giants, producing more than a million barrels of oil each. 
That's a lot of oil, folks. And uh, that's a lot of persistence and a lot of determination. Um, and uh, thanks to uh, thanks to men like Jake Sims, uh, you know, for cleaning up the town, it ended up being a good place to live. But you know what else was undoubtedly, undoubtedly happening? Uh, you got that much, this is in the 1920s, you got that much in the way of discovery and new production. And yes, there had to be, had to be many innovations, had to be uh, new technologies and new ways of doing things uh, being created all along the way, all along the, all along the way. In fact, uh, let's see, uh, guess what all of these uh, oil companies in the Seminole boom, I guess what was one of the things that helped them find so many reservoirs that produced so much. They were drilling in the right places, folks. And do you know why? Well, probably a lot of reasons, but one reason is it was just a few years prior in, uh, you know, something like 1921. That was when reflection seismography came onto the scene and started to change everything about petroleum exploration uh, in the early 1920s, just, just shortly before the Seminole oil boom, uh, thanks to a guy named uh, J.C. Karcher, who had actually created methods to locate enemy artillery during World War I. Uh, anyway, he did the first, uh, it was in 19, yeah, here we go, 1921, uh, he did the first reflection seismograph so, uh, to basically uh, map a geologic section, um, he did, guess where he did this experiment in Ardmore, Oklahoma. So, um, a lot happening in Oklahoma, uh, in this period of time, but fortunately, you know, it was just, uh, it worked out great because the guys, and there were some other scientists that got involved in the whole reflection seismography thing, um, all, all from Oklahoma. There were two, two or three other guys and they figured all this out, but, uh, undoubtedly, this innovation helped uh, drive that boom, that Seminole oil boom with the 60 reservoirs and the, what was it? What were the numbers? 60 reservoirs and, and uh, I don't know, it was a lot. It was a lot of oil. Seven wells producing a million barrels a day, a bunch of other wells. Uh, oil was flowing in Oklahoma. So um, I give a nod to the, uh, to the innovation bit. And the technology bit, because I'm supposed to talk about oil field ingenuity on this show, but I think this story really speaks to the uh, the character of the people and the fortitude that they must have had. They must have had. And they persevered and they got shit done. They did stuff. Um, and I think we... Uh, I, I think it's interesting that as our society becomes more advanced and more progr and progresses more and becomes more sophisticated, I think we I think we do stuff less, and that's not to say that it's automatically bad. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that I'm very happy that uh, life today isn't like it was in the 1920s uh, in in certain ways. But I think that as we face all of the challenges uh, that we're up against today, uh, of which there is no shortage. I think we can maybe uh, learn a little bit, maybe draw some inspiration from the people in stories like the Seminole Oil Boom, the people who really did stuff. And I don't think they were as concerned about making sure that they had an opinion and that their opinion was heard and that their, and that their view on things was represented. I think they just got shit done and they just saw the goal and, and they, they went for it. And so, I will close 
with a little tidbit here from uh, Samuel Clemens, otherwise known as Mark Twain, who said, there are basically two types of people, people who accomplish things and people who claim to have accomplished things. The first group is less crowded. (laughs) 